Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We take a deep dive into the bullying scandal at Hamilton City Hall. A sub-variant of COVID-19 has been spotted in Western Canada. The Ticats and Argos clash with first place on the line. We ask you who should play the Grey Cup halftime show. 100 years after its discovery, insulin continues to help people with diabetes. And we talk about the weird and wonderful things that cats do. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Councilors unanimously voting to impose sanctions against one of their own the other day. The vote was 12 nothing, so there's really no debate on this decision. Well, I mean, there was debate. But the end results, the voting, tells you how councillors, fellow councillors, are feeling about this issue. They've approved the recommendation within an integrity commissioner's report, which identified a code of conduct violation by councillor Terry Whitehead. Now, these sanctions include 30 days lost pay and restrictions in his communications with staff. He's also been stripped of the responsibility of chairing any committee meetings for the rest of the term. And this all revolves around... Um, bullying efforts from Mr. Whitehead to some staff members. Many councillors chimed in in uh, the meeting earlier this week about this issue, including Councillor Narinder Nan, who says council's actions reflect a collective responsibility. To protect staff, to protect our residents, and to protect each other, and most importantly, uphold the code of conduct and ensure that people can participate in this democratic process around this table in a way that their integrity is not questioned. Now, for his part, Councillor Terry Whitehead is challenging the Integrity Commissioner's report, exploring his options, and is going to consider taking the matter to a judicial review. He also issued a brief statement, insisting that he has a duty to ask tough questions on behalf of Hamilton residents. Let's bring in our guest on this topic. Peter Grafe is a professor of political science at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Uh, Bullying staff is certainly some serious stuff. This is uh, really rare as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a particular culture at Hamilton City Council, and I mean, it comes out when you read the report where they, where the, uh, uh, you know, the integrity commissioners say they've seen hundreds of council meetings across uh, the province of Ontario, and they've never seen a performance quite like that of, of the Mountain Councillor. Uh, you know, at this particular occasion, and then they've found, you know, evidence that this was certainly not uh, an isolated situation. So, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly there's something pretty particular in the way that uh, Hamilton City Council deals with staff. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, councillors, you know, were given the chance to have the chair, uh, you know, rein in uh, Mr. Whitehead on this occasion, and they voted against the chair, right, indicates that it's a kind of broader problem that the City Council as a whole uh, doesn't seem to see that there's a problem in the manner in which uh, they've been interacting with staff and with residents who who delegate before them. Uh, Councillor Whitehead made some serious allegations, um, basically accusing uh, a staff member of disobeying past council decision, suggesting this indiv- individual lied. I mean, the, 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 these are serious allegations. Yeah, and I mean, if they were, you know, true, there's processes in, in which to, you know, engage them as opposed to, you know, doing it in a, in a questioning over a particular uh, issue. I mean, I think more generally there's a way in which when, you know, citizens or staff appear before council, uh, you know, the councillor in question, but not only that councillor, uh, I think kind of misunderstand their role. I mean, the point uh, of asking questions of these people is to get a better understanding of an issue that council ultimately has to make a decision on uh, subsequently. So the, 
the point isn't to run a, a kind of, uh, you know, questioning, uh, you know, as if you were in a courtroom of these people uh, to try and show that you know better than them or that they're hiding things from you. You know, it's to get the best information to make a, a subsequent decision. I mean, if you have other ideas or information or arguments, uh, you know, it's the time for those is when you're discussing these questions with your council colleagues, uh, you know, not in, in the context of, you know, grilling someone in a, in a you know, a, a half hour or 45 minute long uh, cross investigation you know, as in, in this instance and a number of other instances in, in, in front of city council. Yeah, and in front of the, the you know, the viewing public or, uh, you know, whether it was in council uh, before the pandemic, uh, the relationship between council and staff, there, there's a, you know, an interesting dichotomy there because you have elected officials and non-elected city officials. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, again, the, the point uh, of how this is set up is that council really has a relationship with the city manager uh, you know, who's then in charge of, you know, staff. And the po- point of staff is to come and, you know, feed the decision-making ma- of city council, uh, but not to be, uh, you know, directed directly by city council in, in their work. So uh, the, the proximity, you know, comes to be pretty close. And so even in the context of this discussion, we then had Councillor uh, Brenda Johnson uh, noting that, you know, she'd seen uh, certain representatives of developers coming in and braiding staff and telling them, that if they didn't, you know, agree with their point of view, they're going to go and go and see, you know, the councillors and get them to overrule them. Um, so again, the, the extent to which uh, council seems to be really implicated uh, in the decision making of city staff, uh, you know, maybe explains a number of things we've seen, such as you know, low rates of uh, morale in city staff and relatively high turnover, even among pretty promising staffers. You know, choosing to work elsewhere, where presumably their professional competence is valued rather than you know questioned publicly. You bring up a good point. There have been many high-profile city staff officials who have gone elsewhere, and uh, most notably to Toronto. And we all think, well, that's a natural progression because Toronto's a bigger city. There's more to do, maybe more opportunity. But the environment at City Hall probably play a part, uh, you know, in many of those decisions as well. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, certainly when city council gets too involved in determining, you know, who gets uh, who gets promoted or hired, where there's a kind of sense that, you know, the acceptability of personnel decisions, uh, you know, rely on, on council opinion, I, I think that has an impact on, you know, on the one hand, uh, how well the city managers are actually able to choose their best and brightest, as opposed to those that are most popular with council, uh, but also in people's decisions about whether they want to continue there or, or, or look in another neighboring municipality. We have one more minute with uh, Peter Graef, political science professor at McMaster University, and I want to bring up a comment that Councillor Judy Partridge made, who said elected officials had enabled Whitehead's behavior for years. Um, is there a shared complicity here? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that, uh, you know, people, it's not yesterday, <laughs> people said that uh, the Code of Conduct was not being properly applied and that it was uh, not a good relationship between city staff and council in the manner in which questioning was was coming forward. You know, in in addition, council meetings went so much longer than necessary because even points of non-decision were bogged down in this kind of heavy judicial questioning of any kind of witness or or public delegation. So, yeah, I think uh, the refusal of a number of councillors not to speak up, including times when challenges were made, by other, you know, councillors, and, uh, you know, some of the ones that had been there longer decided they, they didn't want to cross, I guess, uh, their old way of doing. So, yeah, the, there's a certain collective responsibility, and hopefully uh, there's a bit of a change in culture going forward. But, again, for many of the councillors, they've been there for a long time, and they've tried to, you know, limit challenges to this when new councillors come and say, well, this isn't actually how it's meant to work, and this is not a healthy way of, of engaging. So, 
Yeah, for many of the longer standing councillors, uh, it's a big question, and presumably one citizens will be asking on election day in less than a year. Thanks for your time uh, today, Peter. Enjoy your weekend. And you too. Thank you very much. Peter Grafe, political science professor and McMaster University, joining us here to discuss the bullying scandal that has... Uh, well, rocked Hamilton City Council, and some work is, um, you know, has to be done. Some uh, relationships have to be repaired. Whether they are repairable uh, remains to be seen. We shall see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pleased to be joined by Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good to have you. Thank you. Well, one of our topics today regarding COVID-19 seems to be a different thing uh, each and every day, but there are two mm-hmm. new derivatives of COVID-19 Delta variants that are, are, I guess, being monitored in Western Canada. The question is, are they more transmissible or do they cause more severe illness? So maybe before we dive right into uh, the details of, of what this is, uh, they're being called, I guess, two sublineages, AY.25 and AY.27, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, that have been detected. What is a sublineage? Is it a mutation of a mutation? Is it a variant of a variant? Yeah, it is a variant of a variant. So it is expected that viruses, especially COVID-19, we've known from the evidence that over time it can actually mutate and sort of take on a different form. The best way to explain it or the simplest way to explain it is like somebody in Halloween who puts on a mask. Um, And that's precisely what those variants are. It all depends how scary that mask that person puts. So uh, I'm trying to simplify a very complex way of thinking about molecular biology, which is that how viruses mutate over time the longer they're in existence. And this is precisely what's happening. Now, the ones in Western Canada don't seem to be as dangerous as we're expecting to be. However, officials are paying very close attention to them to see if they can, they actually do transmit more rapidly than the original Delta strain. That is a great analogy with the Halloween mask. In terms of the mutation, how does it go from one mask to another? What's happening there? It's just time. And so they become very sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, devilish in their way of thinking. And so they, the longer they exist in our communities, the virus, the more they become sneaky, for lack of better words, on figuring out how to get into people's homes and homes here being the human person. So they, it's just a way that they, you know, they become smarter over time. They realize that there is build up immunity in the community, that people are not getting as infected faster. And so by virtue of being a virus, they tend to mutate or put on a different mask to deceive the human body to find a way to get through it. And so that's exactly what's happening with the variants. Now, I understand these new mutations were first detected in Idaho, of all places. They've mm-hmm. spread into Canada, and they, they did so during the, the summer months. Should we be worried? There's actually no evidence that it causes any more severe illness than the ones that we've had before. And it also, there's no evidence, just to be clear, that it evades vaccine protection. So we already have a high level of percentage of people vaccinated. And so there's no evidence that this virus or this mutation is actually, you know, fooling the, the vaccine protection that we have in place. So for now, I think health officials are just paying close attention to how fast it can transmit to the communities. But there's no serious concern at this time. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid, a health policy expert, and we're talking about the latest, I guess, new derivative, mutation, sublineage. There's a lot of uh, different descriptions for uh, what they're looking at in Western Canada. Uh, One health official out West is analyzing whether or not these sublineages transmit more rapidly than Delta. Would we have figured that out by now? Not yet. I think they're paying close attention to see if it sort of will spread faster than anything else before. Um, and I think it's all going to depend on how the community responds to it. So what, what I mean by that is that 
are they public health interventions in place that people are following? Like, are people wearing masks? Are they still maintaining some form of social distancing? I mean, this is the reason why we've said before that the pandemic is not really over. You know, there are signs and hope that it is almost at the end of it, but there are things that we need to still keep in mind, like, you know, keeping distance between individuals and trying not to be so close to people during this critical time in the winter when we're all indoors. Delta has been the most dominant variant uh, of concern. There's no doubt about that. What are the odds of another variant coming forward, whether it's as deadly and, and as transmissible as, as Delta? Odds are, is this just going to keep mutating until it's, it, I don't know whether it's going to die off or not, or whether it subsides to the fact that it's not as deadly as it has been? Yeah, I mean, as long as the virus exists in the world to a large percentage, it will continue to mutate. And so this is why there's been a call for vaccine, providing vaccines to other parts of the world where where they don't have access to vaccine. Because I've always said this from the beginning of the pandemic, until everybody's safe, nobody's safe. Uh, And so it's so important that like countries in the world where the case numbers are high and there is a chance that they can travel to Canada, that we we help them control the pandemic as well. Because you know, as long as it's, it's, it's high in certain communities, there's a high chance that it will mutate. Within Canada, we have a high level of protection because we have a high rate of vaccination. Um, and so it, it probably won't originate from Canada. It's going to be very unlikely that the virus mutates here in Canada. It's probably going to come from a tide. So with this a new derivative or new lineage or sub a variant of interest at this point? The health officials in Western Canada are paying very close attention to it. And I think rightly so. We can't just assume that it's not going to cause have an effect. We need to keep close eye on any of those variants that come about. Great stuff. Dr. Khaled, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you. Again, that's Dr. Ahmad Faras Khaled, health policy expert, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We do know that the latest pandemic projections are going to be released later on this morning by the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. That modeling will be published at 11 a.m. We'll certainly have reaction to that throughout the day. And it comes amid, well, one of the highest numbers we've seen in a while. 642 cases reported yesterday, the highest since October the 9th. And it also comes as the province pressed pause on its uh, reopening plans, at least in terms of nightclubs, strip clubs, bathhouses, where proof of vaccination is still required. They will not see their capacity limits lifted on Monday as expected and will instead have to wait until at least mid-December to do that. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the province's chief medical officer of health, says the decision was made because of the rising case counts and the test positivity rates. The seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases now stands at 532. That compares to 383 just a week ago. So that is something to keep an eye on. Of course, uh, when we uh, receive that modeling, we will bring that to you on at 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Damagala, it's... Oh, wow. He hit the upright. Can you believe that? He hit the upright on the convert attempt. It's no good. And the Argos continue to lead this football game. It's 17-16. to 16. Oh, bad memories. But there is a chance to swipe that all away tonight. It is the biggest game of the season, hands down. Tiger Cats, Argonauts, first place in the CFL's East Division, is on the line tonight. R.J. Broadhead is the play-by-play announcer of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and joins us now. R.J., good morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. My pleasure, Rick. Yeah, this is a, a big game. 
<laughs> that was a tough convert miss, especially when the final result is by one point. Those hurt. These two teams have played some pretty, well, at least two of the three were close, 17-16, 24-23. Does anybody have the edge? Because the Ticats have won three in a row coming into this game. Toronto's won five of six. Does anybody have that edge tonight? Yeah, it's a great question, Rick. It's been a funny year in the CFL. Like, even with the Tiger Cats, feel like they started off slow. Those were two tough games and then played pretty well and then lost a couple of heartbreakers at Tim Hortons Field, now playing well. And the Argos, six of their eight wins have been by three points or less. They're 5-0 and at home. The statistics certainly lean toward Hamilton. It, when you look at the statistics and you didn't know Toronto's record, you'd be shocked that they're at 8-4 and four and leading the division. But somehow they've found ways to win games. They're great at BMO Field. Uh, this, is, this is what it's all about. This is... When you want to peak, you want to have your best game. And the Tiger Cats really have probably been playing playoff football since they came out of that bye, starting with that Ottawa game. So as far as an edge, I have no idea. (laughs) I, I, I would say the Tiger Cats, but Toronto finds a way to win games. Yeah, one of the weirdest stats of this season, four of the CFL's nine teams have allowed more points than they've scored, and that includes Toronto, which is a division leader. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've allowed 22 more points than they've scored. And at 8-4, and four, I talked about those close games, they're, they, they find a way to win. And, and that's, that's character, that's skill. There's a bit of luck involved with that, too. But the Tiger Cats have to be feeling pretty good. Probably their worst game of the year was at Beamfield with that uh, missed convert. And they fell behind, they were flat, and still had a chance to win that football game. So the two rivals, you just can't draw it up better than this. Two games left in the regular season, and uh, Toronto-Hamilton battling for first place in the East Division. It, it's it's so exciting. The Tiger Cats have really come on statistically with points scored. They're third in the league, points allowed, number two in the league. So you think back to the start of the year and and it, it, it didn't look good and they just continued to stay the course, never panic, next man up mentality with all these injuries and they're winning games. And if they win out, they'll finish in first place. If they win tonight, they'll be at least guaranteed a home game. But you have to look at Toronto. They've got one game against Edmonton remaining, so you'd probably bet on Toronto winning that. So Hamilton really has to win tonight if they want first place in the East. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton is R.J. Broadhead, Hamilton Tiger Cats play-by-play announcer. Ticats Argos tonight. Pre-game show on CHML begins at 6.30. Kickoff at 7.30 after the game, the fifth quarter here on 900 CHML. You mentioned injuries. Another significant injuries uh, injury that the Tiger Cats are dealing with tonight is running back Don Jackson, one of the red hottest players in the league never mind just at the running back position he's tweaked his groin at practice earlier this week this is it going to be a huge loss i think so don jackson was emerging as as a real threat and of course that helps the passing game we all know that when the running game is so effective and and just on a different note had a chance to talk to him this week just a, a really engaging Young man, he's just fantastic to to speak with. And at that point, when we talked to him after practice, he hadn't injured himself, so we anticipated he was going to be in. the The good thing with uh, 
with the depth of the Tiger Cats is Sean Thomas Erlington will come in. He leads the team in touchdowns. He has been a, a terrific running back for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. So maybe he doesn't have that burst that Don Jackson does, but he's a, a great blocker, good in the receiving game, and he can get those running yards when needed. And the Tiger Cats have been blocking much better up front with that offensive line. They've been creating holes. So it will be a loss to not have Don Jackson, but Sean Thomas Erlington is more than capable of getting the running game going for the Tiger Cats. Also in the red-hot department, Jeremiah Masoli. Um, he's been outstanding the last several weeks. Yeah, you, you can't get any better. He's most outstanding player numbers the way he's been going. He, uh, his streak of 300-yard passing games came to an end, but they still got the victory against Beast and all over. Let's say smart decisions. He's with Casper this week. And really, when you think back, there haven't been many passes that he's thrown that have the opposition even getting an opportunity to knock it down or pick it off. It's been really intelligent passing by Jeremiah Masoli. He's used seven receivers in last two games, so he's spreading the ball around. There's really no trend for the defense to gear on. And, uh, again, the big key is not turning the ball over. Seven straight games without an interception. And, surprisingly, the CFL record is eight straight games. So if he has another clean game tonight, it would tie the CFL record with eight straight games without an interception. Should be in bar- Yeah, no doubt about that. That's, that's an amazing statistic. Should be a barn burner tonight. R.J. Broadhead, thanks for the time today. Have a great call tonight. Oh, I appreciate it, Rick. Looking forward to it. That is Hamilton Tiger Cats play-by-play announcer R.J. Broadhead. Again, our pregame show here on CHML begins at 6.30. Kickoff is at 7.30. And, of course, after the game, we'll have all the reaction and your reaction to the game on the fifth quarter on 900 CHML. CHML's Facebook page will be broadcasting live as well. This is a game that, uh, well, could, could go either way. I mean, Tiger Cats are red hot. Argos are playing some really good football. It's in Toronto. The Boatmen are undefeated at BMO Fields. The Cats averaging over 30 points a game in their last three, playing their best ball easily of the 2021 season. Um, a win tonight by the Argos. They would clinch first. A win tonight by the Ticats. They would leapfrog Toronto into first. And with a chance to clinch, home field advantage in that first-round playoff by with a victory next week as well. Should be exciting to watch. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Who should perform the Grey Cup halftime show? You can call in now at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Send me an email, rick at 900chml.com. At Rick Samprin, at AM900CHML are the Twitter handles that you can vote on as well. Who should play the halftime show? Now, there was a recent Instagram post by Hamilton's Arkells that said, quote, your best boys of a special announcement this week. And it was accompanied by a picture of frontman Max Kerman wearing a Ticats jersey. So it's not official, but we think it's the Arkells, which would not be a bad choice as well. Who should play the halftime show, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Again, the email, rick at 900chml.com. On Twitter, at am900chml, at Rick Samprin. Peter has called in a good morning, Hamilton. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Um, given Hamilton's rich history in music, I would like to see a smorgasbord band 
people like Ian Thomas, Ray Lyle in the Storm, uh, Teenage Head, The Arkells, uh, Tom Wilson and Junkhouse. Um, I worked in the CFL and been to at least 15 Grey Cups. And the best halftime show I ever saw was in Montreal. And that's what they did. They brought in all these local acts that came up in and did and it was fabulous it was absolutely the best halftime show i ever saw and you know i i think uh given it's a half hour show i think bands could um you know we could easily do that and have each band showcase each band was that in 2008 because they had andre waters Susie mcneil and theory of a dead man play the halftime show no this was a tribute to um michelle pagliaro the great Quebec musician, Canadian musician. And Sass Jordan was there too. And as a mat yeah, and the people they had in there was amazing. If I'm not uh, if I'm not forgetting, I actually think Celine Dion also gave, came up and sang one of his songs. Wow. And and it was really secretive. And the funny thing was I was sitting next to Neil Lumsden. Okay. We both have seen a lot of shows and we said, Wow, that was incredible. Wow. And uh, I never forgot that halftime show and thought, you know, again, we are so rich in Hamilton with with talent. Um, and, and with a guy like Ian Thomas, he's hysterical. Mm-hmm. You get a musician, a great musician and a, a comedian all at the same time. Yeah. What, what more do you need? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so but it's all good bands, though, for sure. Definitely. Peter, thanks for the call. Okay. Thank you. Great weekend. You too. Peter kicking things off here on Good Morning Hamilton with his vote for a cornucopia of musical acts for the halftime show at Grey Cup 108. Got an email from Ron. BTO. Little Bachman Turner Overdrive for Ron. I, that, that may be arranged. I don't know. 905 645 3221 star 9900 on your cell. Who should play the Grey Cup halftime show one month from today at Tim Hortons Field? Should it be the Arkells? An announcement coming up later on this morning from what we hear. Or should it be another band? Uh, Peter mentioned Teenage Head. Tom Wilson. Other local bands like uh, Monster Truck. How about Tommy Swick? We had him on Good Morning Hamilton just a couple of weeks ago. Shoot me an email. Rick at 900CHML.com. At Rick Samprin. At AM900CHML on Twitter. Past halftime shows of the Grey Cups, there have been some remarkable acts. You know, last year, Keith Urban, I thought, played a pretty good halftime show. Uh, Shania Twain in 2017 in Ottawa. I, I think that was maybe one of the more memorable halftime shows that the CFL has put on. Certainly the 100th Grey Cup in Toronto. That was a, I thought that was a great halftime show. Justin Bieber, Carly Rae Jepsen, Marianas Trench, Gordon Lightfoot. Got some big names there. Bachman and Turner played in the 98th Grey Cup run back in 2010. So that would be, and not unprecedented, there have been artists that have played multiple Grey Cup halftime shows. Shania Twain, in fact, played in 2002 as well. Who's your vote? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on yourself. Who should play the Grey Cup halftime show? No one is talking about this set of musicians have a listen and just picture yourself at tim horton's field it's december 12th there's snow twinkling down into the you know stands people on their feet they're getting ready for a spectacular halftime show headlined 
by these guys and girls. Yeah, that's right. You know who they are. You know them, you love them. It's the Burlington Teen Tour Band. How about them apples? They get my vote. That is a a nod to the past. You remember those days at Iverwind Stadium, the Burlington Teen Tour Band playing at the game? They had their whole section at Iverwind Stadium. I say the Burlington Teen Tour Band would knock your socks off at a Grey Cup halftime show. Someone make the call and get them on the field for the halftime. I think they would one-up Keith Urban and Shania Twain and Imagine Dragons from years ago. Are you with me? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Email rick at 900chml.com. I'm hearing crickets in the Burlington Teen Tour Band. I think this is a good idea. On Twitter, at Rick Samprin, at am900chml, who should play the halftime show at the Grey Cup? Grey Cup 108. Now, there is some thought that because Hamilton is hosting again in 2023, that, you know, the team in the city should not uh, fully invest in a a major guest for the halftime. And I'm, I'm calling nonsense on that because, you know, with each and every Grey Cup, you have to put your best foot forward. And certainly, you know, there's not going to be upwards of 40,000 people at Tim Hortons Field, as was originally planned with a lot of the temporary seating. But the show must go on, and I think the best show... Uh, we'll probably include the Arkells. We'll get that official word later on this morning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A century ago, it's kind of hard to believe, insulin was discovered in Canada. Sir Frederick G. Banting made that discovery, and with this month marking Diabetes Awareness Month, the history of this life-saving innovation is at the forefront of how diabetes management has changed since its discovery. Dr. Alana Halperin is an endocrinologist at Sunnybrook Health Science Center and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Halperin, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. Um, a uh, hundred years later, diabetes is still being treated with insulin. Uh, should we be happy about this or sad that a cure still has not been found? What a great question, Rick. So let's start by understanding what diabetes is. Diabetes is a problem when your body cannot make enough insulin to keep glucose or sugar levels steady in your blood. And when the glucose levels are high, that can lead to lots of life-threatening complications in the long term. And when Banting and Best discovered insulin, the primary form of diabetes was type 1 diabetes, where your body literally doesn't make any more insulin. And at that point, insulin was a life-saving discovery, and it turned diabetes from being a terminal illness into a chronic disease. And you're right, we are still nowhere near a cure for type 1 diabetes, but the management of diabetes, the types of insulins, and the way we monitor diabetes has changed profoundly in the last 100 years. I think much more so for the better. So how, what changes have we seen? I didn't know there was different types of insulin. Yeah, so I mean, the original insulins were human insulins. Actually, I take that back. The original insulins were actually from animals and people had lots of terrible allergic reactions to them. Um, but over time, scientists have um, evolved and purified insulin and we have many different types of both long acting and short acting insulin now so that we can more closely sort of mimic what a healthy pancreas would do. 
Um, but when it comes to managing diabetes today, what's really been the most exciting evolution is how we monitor glucose levels. So for many, many years, all we knew in terms of how people's diabetes was being managed was by having them pee and look at how much glucose is in, in the urine. If you actually think what diabetes, the old term for diabetes is diabetes mellitus, it means sweet. And that's how people initially diagnosed diabetes was you had sweet urine, if you can believe it. Hmm. <laughs> but now, um, you know, patients can poke their fingers and see what their blood results are, but that's still very cumbersome, painful, and, and leaves many times in the day where you don't actually know what your numbers are. And in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, we've really evolved to glucose sensing technologies where somebody can wear a device on their arm or on their belly and get moment to moment glucose readings that can really help them manage their diabetes in a much more effective and safe way. Yeah, I've seen commercials about these monitoring devices. Uh, how do they work? How do they do they stick to the body? Are they injected into the body? Great question. So you do initially need a needle to insert the sensor under the skin, it kind of pierces the skin quickly, and then the needle retracts back into the insertion device. And then what's left under the skin is a tiny little soft filament that is constantly sensing the glucose under the skin and what we call the interstitial fluid. And every five minutes, it takes that glucose value and, and records it. And we have two main sensor devices available in Canada today a intermittent scanning device called the Freestyle Libre, which is the one you're probably seeing most of the commercials for. Um, and using an app on your smartphone or a small little reader, you can scan it over the device that's, you know, sort of sitting on top of your arm and get a result without having to poke your finger. And you can do that, you know, as many times in the day as you want without having to, you know, draw blood from your fingers to see what's happening with your glucose values. We also have continuous glucose monitors that don't require a scan. Um, made by both Dexcom and Medtronic. And those devices um, will push the results right into an app on your smartphone or into an insulin pump, which is another really amazing evolution of diabetes management because an insulin pump, instead of injecting yourself every time you need a, a dose of insulin, is continuously injecting insulin. And now we've really gotten to the sort of next level of exciting technology where artificial intelligence algorithms are using the sensor glucose data to modulate the insulin delivery. So it's not a cure, meaning that you don't have to think about your diabetes anymore, but we've really evolved in, over the last hundred years to, to, to change what it looks like to live with diabetes. Very much so. We only have about a minute left with Dr. Alana Halperin, endocrinologist at Sunnybrook Health Science Center, the World, World Health Organization, uh, which is going to be marking World Diabetes Day on Sunday, saying that globally we're having trouble um, with individuals gaining access to insulin and, and diabetes care. There's high prices, there's low availability of human insulin. Globally, how are we doing compared to what we're seeing here in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways in Canada, we're lucky. Um, pricing here is controlled much better than it is in some other places. If you just look from down uh, south on the border, insulin is much more expensive there. But we still actually have huge swaths of our population that I deal with on a daily basis who can't optimally manage their diabetes because they cannot afford their medications. Um, both the diabetes, the insulin and the non-insulin medications and these great monitoring devices that I've discussed. And so there's still a huge area for advocacy. Um, something I've done, I've actually written a piece in the Hamilton Spectator about this. We need better recognition and better coverage um, for all people, regardless of whether or not they have private insurance, um, so that everyone can reap the benefits of these new advances. Absolutely. Dr. Halperin, thank you very much for the time today. Enjoy your weekend. 
Thanks so much for having me. All the best. That is Dr. Alana Halperin, endocrinologist at Sunnybrook Health Science Centre, talking to us about uh, 100 years of insulin and diabetes treatment. Uh, Sunday is World Diabetes Day, and we are currently in Diabetes Awareness Month. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big game tonight, Ticats game day, uh, but we're talking about uh, some different cats, some real cats. And when it comes to pets, whether it's cats or dogs, uh, sometimes there's not a lot of gray area when it comes to uh, having a pet. Some people are cat lovers. Some people really hate cats. Some people love dogs. Some people just don't want any part of a dog. I have four cats and one dog, and I love them all. But sometimes they drive me a little nuts. They drive me a little squirrely, if you can if you can catch my drift there. Dr. Liz O'Brien is a certified feline veterinary specialist at the Cat Clinic here in Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. O'Brien, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Not too bad. Yourself? Great, thanks. How did you become a feline specialist? Oh, oh fun, because I started vet medicine and I'm qualified in all animals, started in mixed animal practice, and uh, had the opportunity to work with Dr. Sandra Trinesky at the Cat Clinic on Concession Street. In um, That would have been 1986. And I just fell in love with the species. Um, they're, they're just magnificent. Uh, real challenge medically uh, because they hide their signs of illness. They're masters of disguise. Um, and I always wanted to specialize um, really in internal medicine and ended up deciding let's specialize in, in felines because medically they can be a real challenge because they, they really pretend they're okay when they're not. Why do they do that? I've had uh, you know yeah. all my cats at uh, at a, a vet, uh, and they've said that. Listen, they really don't show that they're hurting. Uh, they they don't, and and you know part of it is they're predators. We know that they love to hunt, and we see that. But they're also prey, right? So, um, and and you have to think they have to. Um, they're not as domesticated as dogs, um, and I always say that you're never going to find a, a, you know, a, a feral chihuahua kind of thing, but you will find one generation out a feral cat if they haven't been socialized to humans. Um, so they always are, you know, survival of the fittest. Think about the lion guarding his territory. He can't, the, you know, the, the king of the jungle cannot... Uh, let anyone know he's hurting or not himself in any way. And our cats, I find, our domestic cats, the ones that live in our living rooms and sleep in our beds, are very similar, even though they're domesticated, to the great big cats that uh, I've had the opportunity to look after in Africa. Brings me to my next question. I have four cats, as I mentioned. Sometimes, most of the time, they get along. Every once in a while, they don't. Is that common with a group of cats in one household? Really, really common. And they're, they're not inherently social. Like, if we look at cats, the only cat family that really eat together, hunt together, uh, live together is the lion pride. And even within that lion pride, if you watch them, you know, the odd one, they'll nudge up to each other and it's like, get out of my space. Uh, they're not inherently social. I need, they need their own space. And even in a, a, a group of cats, like your cats and your family of four, you might find that three of them bond together. Everyone says to me, my cats all love each other because the, the four of them, I'll find them all in my bed when I'm reading a book. Mm. You know what? Watch them. The ones that really are like a lion pride that, that, that are family are the ones that, that clean each other, right? They're, they're actually cleaning each other and, and socializing that way. The others often exist in harmony most of the time, but they'd be pretty happy existing alone. You know, a lot of them are leopards. 
Right. Yeah, I mean you've you've nailed the dynamic in my household. We have so our four cats are Daisy, who's old and crusty; Louie, who's just completely mellow; we have Ollie, the jittery one; and Gus, the youngest, who's the rambunctious of the bunch. And Gus, Louie, and Daisy will all clean themselves and each other. Yep. Uh, Ollie wants no part of that. Right. And it's it's just an interesting dynamic. Yeah, so you really, in, in, in your household, you kind of have two cat colonies, right? One who's a, a, a solo, he's a leopard, take, you know, take my prey and take it up the tree and eat alone and no one bug me. And the others are more like the pride of lion. And we have to kind of, I often think about my cats. Every patient that comes to the door, I'm like, are you a cheetah, a leopard, a tiger? What are you? <laughs> because because there's so much like those big cats and, and their behavioral and, and how they protect themselves to not show any sign of weakness. Dr. Liz O'Brien is our guest, certified feline veterinary specialist at the Cat Clinic. You can check them out, 391 uh, Concession Street. And we're talking about the weird things and the special things that cats do. And uh, what I find most interesting about cats is, and we can probably relate this to dogs and some other pets as well, is that they each have a unique personality onto themselves. Totally. Totally. They're just, you know what, every, every kitten in the litter, and it is like, you know, if you had triplets kind of things. You know what, same genetics, same parents, you know, just like children, sometimes same upbringing, but very, very unique. And we see that even in kittens as they're developing, you know, from the same litter, and wow, can they have different personalities. You might have a shy one, an outgoing one, and then again, it's their environment that they're grown up, grown up in as well, right? So, you know, nature versus nurture happens in animals just like it happens in people. Pet adoption soared during the pandemic. When you're introducing a cat to uh, a household, what are the do's and don'ts? Well, the big do's is give them their own space and keep them separate to start with, you know, especially a, 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 all cats, you know, give them their own room with their own bedding. You know, cats need, like, if we look at their their essential needs they need their own water bowl their own food bowl their own litter box their own bedding and a place to perch where they can you know cats like to sit up high and watch the world go by right they sleep a lot but they cat nap so they're always you know on on they're always prey in, even in their own own world they're kind of looking over their back to make sure no one's going to guard them so keep them separate for for uh, a bit and then maybe try through a door uh, to see how they're going to engage. You can bring blankets from the one cat into the other room so that they can, you know, get a, a sense of scent. There's, there's um, uh, pheromones, uh, um, such as feel away that you can get, uh, that you put a diffuser in that helps these kitty cats get along. And again, making sure they have their own space, their own food bowl. If you can provide, you know, if you have space in your home and you really need to provide a litter box per each cat... As I said, they're not inherently social. They will communicate and they will share a space and have their own spaces, but they're not inherently social and they really need to have those essential needs that are their own. Dr. Liz O'Brien, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for joining us. You too. Thanks, Mel. Okay. That is Dr. Liz O'Brien, Certified Feline Veterinary Specialist at the Cat Clinic. You can check them out, 391 Concession Street here in Hamilton, and the website is thecatclinic.ca. And... uh, she was mentioning cats wanting to be perched up high, and that is, yeah, no, no word of lie there. They also don't take a straight line. At least my cats don't do this. A straight line to where they want to go. They could be on the couch and wanting to get to the front window, and they will not go from the couch to the front window, but they'll go to, from the couch 
to the love seats, to the chair, to maybe their scratching post and then the window, and make sure that they don't touch the floor. It's almost like they're tree trekking. It's very interesting to watch. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.